Hello, and welcome to the City to Love podcast. I'm Hayden Merrick. And I'm Taylor Ruckle. And in this episode, we'll be talking about Brighton. Brighton is home of the seaside brawl between the mods and the rockers in Frank Rodham's movie Quadrophenia, whose soundtrack was provided by The Who. And incidentally, we have another rock band does soundtrack album to come in this episode, so stay tuned for that. Brighton is home to Nick Cave, not Cage. Make sure it's very important, everybody, to know your Nicks. Absolutely. And uh, Nick Cave, who lives in Hove, has the nickname the Vampire of Hove. And in, in case you don't know, the city of Brighton is actually technically the city of Brighton and Hove. Which I did not know, and I'm glad to know. And will eternally think of Brighton as the city is so nice. They named it twice and then forgot. Yeah. The other name is uh, the other name is New York, right? That's what Michael Scott says. Well, the other <laughs> name is Manhattan. We've got Brighton and Hove. Um, yeah, we have a there's a record shop in the city center called Resident Records, and the tagline on all their merch is actually a Nick Cave quote: um, "The best fucking record shop in Britain." So high praise, place to be. Um, of course. ABBA won the Eurovision Song Contest here in the Brighton Dome in 1974. Of course, you already knew that, Taylor, right? (laughs) Of course, of course. Um, We also host the Great Escape Festival, which is a sprawling multi-venue affair that's branded as the New Music Festival. So we get lots of up-and-coming bands from overseas and certain venues tend to group together bands from one nation so i was at the green door store which is a venue by the train station for much of last year's festival watching all the canadian bands Mm. i love that kind of a world's fair but for bands vibe a world's fair but for bands indeed we are also the the uk's hippest city uh and parliament's only green party seat so the credentials to back up that hippest label yeah green people (laughs) i've never been to brighton uh so you have me at a disadvantage for this episode because you have been to washington dc as we covered what's your experience been like in the the brighton scene any big notable shows you've seen there yeah we've started in the last few years to get more national touring acts where they tended to hit london and then maybe a city further west like southampton but brighton's coming up now and um, recently I've seen Bob Mould of Who's Do in the, mm. the venue mm-hmm. Concord 2. He did a solo show to promote his Blue Hearts album and uh, so therefore he didn't have his band with him and I remember two guys in front of me being like like talking um, just incessantly and I, I said to them like that's Bob fucking Mould man you're talking <laughs> over his set like what? guys get with it yeah what's the problem <laughs> And the, and the problem was that um, they're like, where's his band then? And it's like, oh, <laughs> you didn't hear. <laughs> bad news, bad news, chaps. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sure Greg Norton like, went into the, the restaurant do. business. But yeah, plenty of plenty of great bands come through town. Uh, Ducks Limited, I don't know if you're a fan, but they've been through twice in the last year, I'd say. And both really good shows some of the best i've seen in the city um there's also the up-and-coming cornish songwriter who goes by wonder horse and uh his show was really really cool we love horse acts yeah yeah horse acts all the way 
the other notable evening was trying to get in to see Foo Fighters doing their tiny 700 capacity club show back in like 2013 when they branded themselves as the holy shits and did this small UK run. We didn't get in, needless to say, but we listened from outside and we saw a little slither of girls blue Gibson through the through the door and then went to Burger King. For my money, that's like even a cooler story to tell than having seen them at that show. You know, that's like when you write your big rock star music writer memoir, that's going to be like one of your your big foundational scenes, I have to imagine. Yeah. So instead of that book, Sonic Youth Slept on My Floor, it'll be <laughs> I Saw Dave Grohl Through a Door. <laughs> yes, that would be that's actually that's a nice rhythm to it. I saw Dave Grohl through a door. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I was trying to I was racking my brain trying to think of things that I know about Brighton and the best I've got I'm pretty sure there was a bit in Pride and Prejudice where someone goes to Brighton like I think it's that Elizabeth's sister runs off with the soldier at that one point and I think they go to Brighton is what happens so that's it <laughs> that's the extent of my knowledge of Brighton yeah that's not bad that's more than nothing and uh yeah I dug out the quote from Pride and Prejudice And it reads, in Lydia's imagination, a visit to Brighton comprised every possibility of earthly happiness. She saw with the creative eye of fancy the streets of that gay bathing place covered with officers. Wow. And Huggy Bear, who are a band that we will get to shortly, they see those streets covered with police officers. (laughs) They do. But she... They're none too pleased about that. No. I believe Lydia... um, is referring to soldiers, of course. But yes. yeah, there are quite a few lit- literature links. Um, Dickens regularly stayed at the Bedford Hotel, uh, the now demolished Bedford Hotel, where he wrote a lot of Bleak House. And also Lewis Carroll's sister lived here. So he would visit often. And uh, the story goes that this secret tunnel that runs somewhere under the city supposedly inspired the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland but I mean that is just a rabbit hole right so <laughs> it's probably just a rabbit hole <laughs> like that's the thing already um. yeah but uh Hayden I do have to remind you that this is a show primarily about music and so if you would please start us off with a classic Brighton band To follow along with our focus tracks, check out the Cities to Love playlist on Spotify and YouTube. You can find links in the episode description. Yeah, so when we talk about classic Brighton bands, I think it's important to mention Huggy Bear. The record that I'm highlighting is called Taking the Rough with the Smooch, released in 1993. (laughs) What a title. Huggy Bear then the news in brief is that they were a riot girl band who kind of evolved in tandem with the u.s riot girl scene that was of course prevalent in dc your backyard and olympia in the early 90s huggy bear even put out a split lp with bikini kill in 93 same year as this record which is very cool i love to see that kind of transatlantic collaboration happening and i especially marvel at that those networks that existed pre-social media that allowed those things to happen. Yeah, like mail bags and phone booths and whatever. But, um, but you you have had some uh, uh, very much post-internet communication with this band. Is that right? Uh, yes. So briefly, I was working on a piece 
about Riot Girl that ultimately fell through and my editor really wanted me to speak to like he was aiming high we're gonna get Sleety Kinney we're gonna get Kathleen Hanna we're gonna get Chris Rowley of Huggy Bear we didn't get any of those um so yeah Chris was understandably of the opinion that like what more is there to say um yeah and you know Riot Girl's being covered to death in so many books so it's hard to find something else that's worth saying, but this is certainly one of the bands in Right Girl that are not as talked about. But yeah, he uh, is not a fan of interviews, which yeah is totally understandable. Yeah, you know, I I understand that, but also I would say, uh, you know, in your in favor of your piece, this is not a band I have ever heard of at all until you brought them to my attention. So I am glad that you know. There, you're, you, you made the effort there, and uh, now we at least get to to have some conversation about it. I also, you know, I respect them taking a hard stance on something like that, not doing interviews. You know, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> well. Speaking of taking a stance, they did actually believe that all bands should break up within three years, which maybe is why you haven't heard of them. <laughs> but um, <laughs> they followed through. They broke up three years to the day. Chris Rowley has said um i can't quite fact check that but yeah they also you know they refuse to have their photo taken or do press but yeah as for kind of the makeup of the band so i mentioned chris rowley who's one of the co-vocalists the other is nikki elliott so they've got this gender equal lineup and therefore kind of branded themselves as girl boy revolutionaries that was their moniker which is from a lyric yeah, we love a band with co-vocalists on this show, and I especially enjoy when they trade off songs, the ping-ponging of it. You can hear that in this compilation. So it's a collection of three seven-inch EPs. They did record a full length. It's called Weaponry Listens to Love. But I think that this compilation is a better starting point. Um, I kind of just prefer it personally anyway, but... Yeah, it came out... As a matter of taste. yeah. It came out on a label called Ouija Records, which is a f- which is fun to say, Ouija. That refers to a zip code, W111JA in London, which is the zip code of Rough Trade. So this was kind of a splinter label formed by Rough Trade staff. Hey, Aiden. Yes, Taylor. I have to wonder about Ouija Records. Like, <laughs> we're talking about early days of the internet here. Um, yeah. But do you think... Do you think they ever had online forums? And if so, do you think they called them the Ouija boards? <laughs> that's good. One point. Thank you. That's Thank one you. point to to your house. I'll, I'll throw it on the scoreboard. <laughs> yeah. The episode scoreboard. I like Ouija boards. Um, I owe you one pun. <laughs> Thank you. I will cash in on that at, an, at a time of my own choosing. <laughs> There's no expiry date. Um... <laughs> Even though Huggy Bear were removed from the Right Girl epicenter, they didn't operate in isolation. So there's a band called Blood Sausage, for one, who were on the same label, Ouija, um, also based in Brighton, and they had an overlap in members with Huggy Bear, as we saw in Black Tambourine and Lilies, etc. Onto the actual sound of the record, as you well know from listening some of the songs aren't the easiest to listen to um i think it's a lot more violent than the u.s right girl stuff that we think of immediately um 
I was being cheekier earlier about this band and their stance toward the police, and I want to be clear that I share their anti-authority sentiments. Of course, yeah. Certainly in the lyrics there is um, a lot of fighting back against authority and oppression, and uh, in the delivery they're hissing and spitting and whispering, but also saying, yeah, talking about um, violent things too, but... Yeah, what I love about this record is that um, you have all of that, and then also it's captured in these these recordings that have a lot of depth to them. There's the the violence you're talking about. There's the very punk ethic of them, and there's also little extra bits of things like toy piano on the song "Can't Kiss." If I can say, I can't say the name of that song. Apostrophe T. C A R N apostrophe T. There's this like neat scratchy whistly sound on the song Derwin. Um, there's just so many bits like this that add a lot of texture to what they're doing. There's something like a glockenspiel on the song Sizzle Meat, or I think it could just as easily be Breaking Glass, to be honest. It's hard to yeah. tell. And I think it's it's a lot of those extra touches that take a good punk record to the next level. There's all these extra layers to it. It's a record that has a lot of these frank depictions of these very high stakes kind of situations. No Sleep being a, a track that stands out to me as particularly chilling. You know, the lyric that sticks in my head is no sleep till that man is out of town. Uh, I also wanted to point out a little bit of transatlantic solidarity here on this particular track, No Sleep, because I found a cover of that song by the DC post-hardcore band on Discord Records called Black Eyes, which they recorded in 2003 and only just released on their Bandcamp this summer. It was from a cover compilation that, that never came to pass, so I just wanted to shout that out. That's a great find. Black Eyes, That's No Sleep. Some serious research there. And um, later on in the episode, Huggy Bear comes up again just to tease the <laughs> listeners. So there's maybe a, a pin. bit of a re- renaissance. Yeah, I, I I agree. And I think that listening to it, having grown up, up around here, you can just feel the city's like kind of dirty, gritty vibrance, like the, the back alleys under the pier, the clubs and yeah. It's really lived in and exciting. And What would you say is a good entry point for people to uh, get into that vibe and, and start to sort of immerse themselves? Yeah, the easiest way in is probably the song Her Jazz, which is one word, Her Jazz. Bit of a cheat pick because it's their most popular song on streaming services, etc. And it was played a lot by the venerable John Peel. But yeah, it's got the more conventional structure. It's got kind of like a almost a pop hook and it's got the the lyric that i think sums up basically the band and riot girl more widely which is this is happening without your permission there's a lot that's a very loaded line i love that this track is built on a very familiar sounding kind of surfy 50s rock chord progression and it sounds throughout the song like huggy bear are kind of mocking that and hacking it to pieces as the song goes on it is such a cool way to sum up their whole ethos and what they do. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track seven, Her Jazz by Huggy Bear. So Taylor, your classic pick is a bit of a change of pace. So why don't you tell us about that? Yes, My classic pick is a record called The Power Out from 2004 by the band Electra Lane. This is a band that formed in Brighton in 1998, 
and they put out a mostly instrumental post-rock debut record in 2001 called Rocket to the Moon. That's Rock It to the Moon, if you were wondering. We love a pun. It's a pun. It's a pun. Put it on the board. Electrolane is on the board for puns. Um, this band really, I think, picks up steam on their sophomore album, The Power Out. They mutate into this very kind of literary and very multilingual post-punk. Or that is to say, I think if this was their debut record, we would call it post-punk. There's a lot of contemporary reviews that still call them post-rock at this stage. They're in this kind of nebulous middle zone. Post-rock and post-punk are very tortured descriptors anyway. Cut to the chase. This is very austere, very rhythmic, above all, very weighty music. It's this very clean-sounding record, and yet Electrolane creates a lot of atmosphere with just a few main elements. You've got the guitar and the organ and the bass and drums. I think it still sounds like a seaside kind of record for all of that, but maybe more of an off-season winter-by-the-sea vibe. You can hear the chill in the air when you listen to this record. The, the rock shop. And the, uh, the ice cream place have shuttered their doors yes. for the winter, you know. Yes, exactly. It's windy. And of course, um, well, not of course, but I read recently that the term f- post-rock was first used during a Stereolab review. I didn't know that. That makes sense, though. And uh, of course, <laughs> Stereolab is a near-universal <laughs> point of comparison for this band, Every review you read of their early records, especially uh, Stereolab comes up. There's a lot of crowd rock in the mix here. There's a contemporary review from The Guardian that describes them as Stereolab via the Stooges, which is very, I think, astute. Um, there's also a, a song on their first record, Rock It to the Moon, um, that has a lot of dog stuff going on. So I, that could also be the <laughs> joke that they're also a band that writes about being right. a dog. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I just yeah. wanted to highlight that. I also wanted to to sidetrack a little bit, bring up a Guardian quote from a different review, another different condescending Electrolane review from the same year for some reason. Um, from the same publication in the, the same, same year. Yeah, they say, this is probably destined for the darkest recesses of the John Peel program, but it deserves the same attention afforded to similar one-offs such as British Sea Power. So put a pin in that, folks. We'll be back for you guardian reviewer whose name i will not give here um out of politeness but uh i just thought that was a really funny thing given the long tales of both of those bands i mean they're both brighton bands i'm putting this down to london prejudice from the guardian i have no choice but to believe you on that in in any case they're damning with faint praise i think they're going off the mark in the process and uh uh, we will revisit that (laughs) later on But to get a little bit more into the influences of this band, beyond Stereo Lab and maybe possibly the Stooges, there's a great interview from 2002 with a blog called Penny Black Music, where the guitarist Mia Clark talks about how they were inspired by a lot of the post-rock touchstones like You Will Know Us by the Trail of Dead, like Godspeed, You Black Emperor, but they're coming at this with a lot of other varied inputs. And the quote here is, Sometimes we experiment with raga raps on the sampler, and we also cover a Bruce Springsteen song, just to keep our heels firmly in the mud of classic rock. It struck me as a very funny thing to say as a post-rock band, that you're keeping your heels firmly in the mud of classic rock. Yeah, you were especially enamored with the Springsteen cover as well. It's really an effort not to make the whole episode about that cover. I'm showing so much restraint here, Hayden, you have no idea (laughs) 
whatever you're doing right now listening to this, stop the episode and go listen to Electra Lane's cover of I'm on Fire because I heard that for the first time when we started this project. Um, and I've now listened to it upwards of 30 or 40 times. And um, that's only going to go up. Keep an eye on my uh, last FM stats at the end of this year, Hayden, because mark my words, top of the charts, it's going to be I'm on Fire by Electra Lane over, over full albums worth of material that I've listened to multiple times. But I'm getting so far off track here. I can't wait. Anyway, where were we talking about? Yeah, that's right. Okay, The Power Out is the, the power album. Out. The, the cover's not on this album, but I think it's a pretty good album anyway. Uh, I love how diverse it is sonically. My read on this is that coming from a primarily instrumental background, which is a style I also love. You know, I was I was so into those bands that I mentioned before and also Explosions in the Sky when I was a teenager. But um, yeah. they take a lot of liberties to experiment with the vocals. You know, why not sing in Spanish or French or German? Why not take your lyrics from literature? You know, why not have a choir on only one song on this album? There's no established precedent uh, from the past records, so they kind of just can go nuts with what they want the vocals to be. This is a record that has a lot to say and Electrolane finds a lot of really interesting ways of saying it, I think. I mean, the choir thing could have been budget reasons, but also it's kind of special just having it on one song. You know, I had never considered that, but it may be <laughs> that they didn't have the budget to hire them for the whole session. This I think is the that cynic in me. It's one of those cases where limitations, if that's the case, end up making something all that much more special. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Entirely possible, though. Uh, bears consideration. Anyway, they recorded this record with Steve Albini at Electrical Audio in Chicago. And the funny thing is, I didn't become aware of them until 2020 by way of some other Chicago musicians. 2020 was the year that Mia Clark from Electrolane co-produced the album Just Look at That Sky by a Chicago post-punk band called Ganser, who make this more aggressive but I think similarly artistic and very weighty sort of music. And in doing so... Mia Clark finally closed the transatlantic producer exchange loop that Steve Albini opened all those years ago. There's that research aptitude coming again. Maybe also worth mentioning, Stereolab, again, had deep connections to Chicago too. They worked with John McIntyre or McIntyre of Tortoise. He had a studio called Soma in Wicker Park where they did their album Sound Dust and Emperor Tomato Ketchup and Dots and Loops, two of their other albums were also recorded in Chicago, but in a different studio. So there's something going on here with with post-rock and Chicago and Brighton slash London in We're going to need to look into this. Yeah, we're going to need to do some more research on that. That's our homework from this episode is, is throw some more pins up on the corkboard and let's figure out what's going on here. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew Electrolane after covering that Ganser record. Um, And I I came to understand they have this really great critical reputation. And so I took this episode as an opportunity to finally spend some time with their music. And I'm glad I did because this record totally blew me away. Hayden, what do you think of The Power Out? I really love The Power Out. This is my favorite of the six albums from this episode, I would say, which feels bold considering it wasn't one of my choices. But um, yeah, it's one that I also was vaguely aware of, vaguely aware of it being critically acclaimed. Um, but yeah, it's just so perfect for any setting, any mood. I like walking along the beach here and just kind of getting lost in it. Um, that speaks more highly of it than anything I can say. <laughs> I mean, you can walk around the streets where history has been made <laughs> on a global scale 
Mine's just like, this is where some old people are sunbathing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's great background listening, but it's also great, I mean, foreground listening, as stupid as that sounds. Um, <laughs> I really like the song Enter Laughing that's built on really cool counterpointing guitar parts. There's like three crawling up and down scales weaving in and out of each other harmonizing and in a way that's sort of jazz and sort of almost steve reich-esque and ooh, ooh, yes it's really it's really cool and then verity sussman who i don't know if if like several of them sing um i think she maybe is the lead vocalist but i think that's true yeah yeah i think on this song it's her at least anyway but her voice is her vocal is just so beautiful and soulful and really uh, uh, puts me at ease sort of the most i guess like solicitous or something delivery of the whole album because she has range and she mm. yells and mm-hmm. she on tracks like this deed but um, or the uh, i'm on fire cover very howling yeah. performance love it yeah totally this is very much in my wheelhouse anyway another influence they talk about is Noi, the mm. german band who mm-hmm. um we're gonna need we to set some time aside to talk about Noi hayden we're gonna have to yeah, we'll save it for the Dusseldorf episode. <laughs> so uh, it's kind of interesting to think about the context of this, right? You yeah. had some thoughts on this. I thought so, yeah, because this comes out in 2004. It's the same year as a couple other key albums. Um, one I think of is Antics by Interpol. So you have the kind of New York City-based post-punk revival wave starting to crest. Also, it's the same year as Funeral by Arcade Fire, as in the now disgraced Arcade Fire, where you have the arc of indie rock starting to bend more toward that kind of um, grandiosity, sentimentality. You could not have two more different approaches to sentimentality than Funeral and The Power Out. And uh, I think it's so interesting to look at, you know, you can also see them as a precursor to some of the buzzy UK indie bands of right now, dry cleaning and the like. And I just think that Electrolane is so close to so many of these scenes and doesn't quite break out to the level of, of you know, other bands of the time, maybe just because their record is more introspective or, or they're doing too much of their own thing to sort of break through that way. But it's so interesting to see the overlap. We've mentioned that the record's fairly varied and there's <laughs> a choir on one song and there's yeah. a laid back, almost minimalism kind of song. But which one are you going for as your choice to highlight i gotta i gotta go with the choir this time i have to trust my gut i chose a song (laughs) called the valleys which does not sound like most of the rest of the record but for me it sums up the experimental successes of this record very well the lyrics are drawn from a poem by the world war one era poet Siegfried sassoon the vocals as we mentioned are provided by a choral ensemble called chicago acapella it's sublime it's singular it's like nothing else on this record or on any record Sterilab would not have made this song, in other words. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track eight, The Valleys by Electra Lane. But Hayden, I'm well aware Music in Brighton did not end in 2004, so why don't you tell me about something current? I'd love to tell you about something current. My pick is a band called Beach Riot, very apt Brighton name, and the album is called Subatomic Party Cool, 
and that's as in a cool party, not a particle. Um, We've got another pun, folks. Beach Riot is on the board. Put him up. <laughs> Coming in hot with the puns. It's very... Uh, well, I don't want to steal your <laughs> observation here, but it's very <laughs> origami and angel- angelican. Yes. Origami angelic is the phrase I would use. Yeah, that's what he's written down here, folks. Taylor gets the credit <laughs> for that. Um, it's everything in the Google Doc rundown is collaborative shared property so it's our joke very, that's very generous um you can't go into a venue in the city at the moment without seeing a beach riot sticker or poster they're very they feel like a a real local band and indeed um a few of the members of the band attended bim which is the music college that we have here it's quite well renowned i believe um the brighton institute of modern music one of the largest in the country so I feel like rather than a band with roots here or a band that maybe moved here, they feel like a Brighton band, whatever that means. But it's True another, Brighteners. yeah, another dual fronted group here. We've got Rory O'Connor and Cami Mendetagai trading off vocals. One of the things that I really like here is that there isn't kind of a gimmick to Beach Riot. They feel, and it's, kind of a reductive word to use but just really normal they're a a normal (laughs) band in the in the best way possible and what i mean by that is again they're kind of people i feel like i grew up with and played gigs with at local watering holes people who would be easy to have a chat with over a beer and it's the same thing i think that we the bands that we agree on also kind of give off like the beths yeah, the Beths is a big one, and uh, I see what you mean, the overlap there. Just good at writing these very strong, straight-ahead rock songs. Yeah, exactly. You can tell they really love the music, and concurrently, there isn't much of a message here. There isn't much of a secondary motive. These songs aren't underpinned by a political message, um, and that kind of outlook tracks with what they talk about in one of the interviews I watched at 2000 Trees Festival, where they say that their songs kind of just fall out and they aren't labored over. And if it doesn't come together quickly, then it doesn't come together at all. Uh, paraphrasing there, but... Unfussy is the word of the, of the day for this band. Unfussy is the perfect word. In terms of sound then, these are, as you mentioned, it's, it's a straight up rock record, basically. Big riffs, high energy, lots of fuzz quote drenched in fuzz that's Hmm. according to their spotify bio um i feel like it has echoes of the sort of thing that bully are doing across the pond the grunge adjacent guitar music there's a bit of white stripes-esque thing going on like the single string fuzzy riffs and then the holy shits as they're known in brighton the foo fighters (laughs) kind of like yes middle of the road but not as a pejorative so they're not breaking new ground, but this is fun party riot music. The kind mm-hmm. you want to like blast out of your crappy speakers on the beach while chucking around a Frisbee, you know? Yeah, totally. This album just rocks, you know, special commendation to the bass playing, which really stands out to me about it. Cause I feel like bands always talk about wanting to capture their live sound on record. And I can't really say because I haven't seen this band live, but I can totally imagine the feeling of the bass hitting me in the chest through the PA speakers at the, at, 2000 trees or wherever i'm seeing them 
also, you know, you mentioned this being kind of a normal record. <laughs> I would say I would characterize it as the kind of record I would struggle to write a 500 word review for. Yeah. But I have to say that also that is a super important category of record. This is the kind of record that I can take home to my parents. This is the kind of record I can play for my friends at board game night when they want to play Risk and not be subjected to like uh, Para Ubu or like if we want to pick another Brighton band, maybe Squid or something. You know, bear. this is just a yeah, this is a good time hanging out record and i love that what song do you want to give people to um start with this one i think you can't really go wrong it's it differs from taking the rough with the smooch in that you can start anywhere but that said modern dinosaur is a good shout it's one of the singles so again i'm cheating but it's just a really fun upbeat song that you mentioned the bass. It has a really cool bass line. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And who doesn't love dinosaurs, especially modern ones? You know, Yeah, man. We're talking about particles. We're talking about dinosaurs. This band rocks. Yeah, science. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track nine, Modern Dinosaur by Beach Riot. Why don't you turn the amps up to 11 and tell us about something that's at 11 for your current pick? I would be delighted to. This pick of mine, you ask? Well, my current pick is a band called Lambrini Girls and an EP they put out this year called You're Welcome. This also, I would say, is a record to bring home to your parents, although maybe in a a different connotation. From Electra Lane to here, we've been to the widest extremes of lyrical directness, and there's a time and a place for both. But this is a very political punk band, very direct in their messaging and uh, in their sound. Phoebe Lunny and Lily Masiera Bashgelmez met playing in another Brighton punk band called Wife Swap USA. What a cool name. Excellent punk band name. In 2020, they form Lambrini Girls, a band that is just as brash and loud as Wife Swap USA, though not as uh, comedic, which isn't to say they don't have a sense of humor. Their current Spotify bio says that Banksy is their drummer. Hard to fact chat that one. Hard to, you know, maybe. I also thought it would be worth reading their Bandcamp bio. And Hayden, I'm going to need your help because I can't quite capture the the spirit of this, the accent of it. Uh (laughs) Ahem. Um, imagine your nan is in the boot of your car with a croissant in her mouth and here's Bikini Kill for the first time. That could be you. It will never be us as we are not Bikini Kill. We're not your nan. We are Lambrini girls. We are Lambrini girls. Go hard on the Z. Girls as well. Girls. Girls. I should not have done that. I shouldn't do this. (laughs) It was something. Something over this way. it's, um, It's a shallow thing. But when I think about classic punk, there's something about that accent that is that is very identified with it to me. You know, going back to bands like X-Ray Specs and the course. Television personalities, and, uh, I think, as well. That man, yeah. totally. So the debut EP, You're Welcome, came out back in May this year. Despite having some of the worst cover art you have ever seen, I guarantee it's um, pretty much exactly what you want in political <laughs> punk music. You've got these heavy pummeling bass lines. You've got driving beats. You've got Phoebe Lunny shouting lyrics about misogyny and homophobia and transphobia, the power-based abuse that goes on in the Brighton music scene, as well as in society at large. You know, it's an unfortunately common thing to music scenes all over the world, 
where they end up perpetuating the same power structures and systemic biases that marginalize people in the world at large. And it makes it that much more difficult to engage with punk music, even in the most politically progressive circles. You know, the singer from Anti-Flag being the most recent example of a supposedly progressive musician abusing their power over a scene. Yeah, I like that observation. It's, I feel, as as you've alluded to, it's obviously very in your face and on the nose compared to some of the more subtle activism. Um, but, you know, this more than proves that there's a place for that really explicit, angry, femme-presenting brand of political punk. Like, you need it. You can't meet the overt oppression, the misogyny, the transphobia subtly. Yeah, there's a time and a place. Bring it home to the parents, but maybe like after dinner. <laughs> I agree. And I think that the bluntness of it is really a virtue. Like it can be really cathartic every so often to hear somebody cut back the artifice of songwriting and just say what they're thinking very directly. For me personally, it's really easy to get burned out by the state of the world, how bad things can be. And to me, anyway, hearing a record like this is really refreshing and re-energizing and kind of cleansing in a way. You know, as a reminder that things being as bad as they are, it's worth being angry about. It's worth making noise about. It's worth being very blunt about. Earlier, I mentioned that um, Huggy Bear would come back later. And that is the band that I think feels related to them. They feel like the, I don't know, the grandchildren or something. Um, And Huggy Bear, a, a name checked as an influence in this interview that you found which mentions Riot Girl more broadly, too. Yeah, they have a really interesting take on Riot Girl, which Phoebe Lunny cites as an influence on Lambrini Girls, but also critiques for the ways it could be more inclusive of trans people. And so we have this interview with the line of best fit. Quote, I think it's sort of a double-edged sword because Riot Girl should be about inciting social change, but it is also populated by TERFs. If you're attracting those people to your music, be vocal about trans rights. Make it known we are inclusive and we are angry about these things. If there are transphobic people who are listening to our music under the guise of feminism, then they can get fucked. That's a great quote. It makes sense for me, for a Brighton band, to um, kind of briefly mention the city's known for its activism and, quote, radical politics, despite, of course, still having um, problems in the music scene that they mentioned but yeah this feels like a sort of a different take on brighton than beach riot or something um absolutely adjacent at the same time yeah and all of that is what made me want to choose the song turf wars we have another pun as my focus track for this record t-e-r-f t-e-r-f turf wars it's another very refreshing thing, you know, to hear bands speak up in no uncertain terms about their stance on trans rights. It's worth saying. It's worth saying loudly. It's worth saying bluntly. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 10, Turf Wars by Lambrini Girls. So Hayden, our third category on this show is something cool and... I really feel like you're sort of setting an unfair standard for the rest of the category for the rest of our show here. Why don't you go ahead and tell me about something cool? Yeah, as far as cool bands go, this band is potentially the coolest uh, in Brighton, in the episode, in the in the world. It's bold, but I can't disagree. I don't have any strong argument against that. <laughs> yes. So 
my cool pick is a band called The Go Team. Now, The Go Team is spelt with a... Just to clear up here, the, the, the semantics, the punctuation. There's been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of confusion here. Yeah. We're talking about The Go Team with, with an exclamation point. Go Team. Yeah, it's the exclamation points after The Go. There is another band called The Go Team, Sans exclamation point, who were, of course... A right girl band. So even when I find something that has hip hop, that has rap, I'm still somehow winding up back in the punk realm. When we started this show, I should have known it was just going to be us playing Six Degrees of Slater Kinney the whole time. (laughs) But for some reason, we went ahead and named the show what we named the show anyway. That's that's I even forgot the name of the show, but that makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Why we yeah. So anyway, the go team without an exclamation point, just to clear it up, we're a riot girl band out of Olympia, Washington, uh, with Toby Vale or Toby Vile of Bikini Kill and Calvin Johnson of Beat Happening. They were active in the eighties. Apparently, the Brighton Go Team were not aware of this name. Even so. Mr. Ian Parton, who is the central figure in the Brighton Go team, he... The Go the, team. <laughs> Thank you. He was actually going to remix a La Tigra track. Uh, Kathleen Hanna of La Tigra was, of course, in Bikini Kill with Toby Vale slash Vile. And so she was, like, pissed off that he had stolen her friend's band's name. This is all very confusing and like why is Riot Go on Brighton like so <laughs> intrinsic? But there's something cosmic happening here. Yeah. Um now that we've kind of got that out of the way, let's talk about Thunder Lightning Strike, which is the debut album from the Go team, the Brighton Go. one. Team. It was released in 2004 and as I mentioned Ian Parton is the founder of this band, um, although the liner notes credit simply the Go Team with exclamation point. Even though this album was released in 2004, the Go Team were actually founded in the year 2000. And I guess when it's just you, you could say you founded it whenever, right? <laughs> but um, Founded the day I was born. <laughs> Ian Parton's birthday is the is the foundation date of the Go Team. Yeah, that's it. So Parton was playing in small DIY noisy bands around Brighton in the late 90s and early 2000s um, before starting this project, which involved him playing around with samples um, from, not an exhaustive list here, but dodgy charity shop compilations, old film soundtracks, double Dutch film documentaries and old cheerleader movies. Um, just to clarify for our non-English listeners, a charity shop is what we would call one of those shops on the high street that you just take your old crap you don't want to, right? Um, right. It's not old crap. It's actually, they're wonderful places, but we have lots and lots of them. If you've heard this record, you'll know that there are lots of those cheerleader kind of chants. So that's kind of the through line here. Instead of there being... A primary vocalist um the british rapper ninja does do vocals on some songs and she's fully in the band it's not like a guest rapper or anything she's very much in the band but the samples are often 
in place of kind of a lead vocal track. Yeah, the whole impression of this record is kind of like if you took a live hip hop band and then just stuck like a cheerleading squad in front of it. Yeah. And then there's also his kind of DIY indie rock background in there a bit. Like he in several interviews he mentioned Sonic Youth and at first I really didn't hear that, but I kind of get it now. Some of the guitar parts are that I yeah I don't I'm trying to say it without saying the word angular but um <laughs> sort of we should have like a swear fuzzy. jar but for like um overused music journalist words you say yeah. angular that's a quarter in the swear jar you say ethereal that's a quarter in the swear jar you know hell yeah yeah haunting but, um, haunting is a big one <laughs> I want to ask you so this record is made of these um samples of you know charity shop purchases and and uh guitar and drums and things where did he assemble all of these where was the nexus of this yeah it was um it was actually in his parents house so the studio that's credited on the album credits is jan and ed's basement swansea wales um so not in brighton but i mean a a long stone's throw other end of the south coast but while they're away on holiday he lugged his drum kit and a, a mixing desk and guitars and whatnot into their basement and into their kitchen. And he played all the live instruments himself, but didn't clear any samples because he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> or of course, if you were just screwing around in your parents' house, you wouldn't expect that anyone's going to come for you if you're using these samples. But then, lo and behold, the album went on to be nominated for the Mercury Prize very highly regarded by critics uh, as the eighth best album of 2004 according to who pitchfork pitchfork at the at the peak of their uh uh critical power and crankiness <laughs> 2004 again very critical year in terms of sound there's a childlike joy here and also a swagger so mm. the word I'm landing on is gooey. Um, mm. It's cool, but it's gooey. Yeah. Like it doesn't feel juvenile despite being really fun and upbeat and buoyant and bubbly, lively. I'm just throwing so many words at you now. <laughs> and yet you were able to avoid angular, which this record is not. Uh, <laughs> not on the whole, um, even though it does have those little bits of uh, of Sonic Youth in there. It all sort of coheres really nicely yeah this record is a real sweet spot for me because my first language is rock but i love sampling i love instrumental hip-hop i've spent some time around indie beat makers and so this record has it all i love the brightness you're talking about the joyousness the collage feel it's one of those records that just gets me really hyped about the the act of making things of just like putting pen to paper and and um glue to construction paper or what have you i had never heard this record before and I was pleasantly surprised to realize that huddle formation is the theme to the great NPR interview show Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. So I had heard that song before, but oh, otherwise wow. I was I was pleasantly surprised by the the joy and the swagger. Yeah, that's a fun fact. I didn't know that. I wanted to ask you also about how this album was recorded very mechanically, if we can get a little bit into the audio nerd weeds, because I'm a big fan of the way the production sounds and the way the samples are layered. And to me, it all feels very organic and analog and the way things line up just enough but not super like digitally totally yeah uh thankfully there's quite a lot 
out there on the interwebs about the production. So um, obviously recorded in Jan and Ed's basement. The original demos that Parton made used an Atari 1040 and he was running into Cubase, the software, and used a, an S1000 sampler. And then when it came to... So that was for the demos in terms of the the nerdy equipment. For the actual recording, he used a, an old mixing desk by Soundtracks, which is Sound T-R-A-C-S, and an 8-track Otari reel-to-reel. So we're on tape, baby. <laughs> yeah, we are. He set up this desk in his parents' garage and then had the tie lines going up to the kitchen where his drum kit was set up. So this um, interview actually is with his brother who helped him with some of the production. But his brother says that he would press record and then be running up and down the stairs, you know, hit record, leg it into the kitchen You know, I didn't clock this before, but I think my favorite part about this story is that his brother was there, but wouldn't just hit record on the desk for him. (laughs) That's such a guy. I didn't even think of that. Yeah. That's brothers, man. Also, like, for the, it's the energy. You need to be out of breath to make music this energetic, right? Yeah, there's a breathlessness to this record, for sure. Yeah. There's two versions, too. This is something that's come up. You mentioned earlier that there was some, you know, brouhaha with the sampling. And so that ends up splitting this record in twain we have multiple different mm. versions of thunder lightning strike by the go team yes so the legal version that one will hear if they go to their preferred streaming service is uh, was actually released in 2005 with all the samples cleared although not all of them some of them could not be cleared and had to be replaced or omitted um the illegal version which is floating around out there somewhere i must confess i haven't actually tracked it down and listened to it but that illegal version does have all his original samples we it's also um mixed in mono which i believe is atypical um Mm. because he said if you've got all these samples and they start being panned around it will just sound too you know fake and kind of yeah you'd lose You'd lose the gooiness, you know, if you if you have samples coming in and out in distinct ears, then you can sort of hear the edges of them a little bit easier and distinguish where they start and end versus the way it is in mono where it all sort of washes out. Yeah, absolutely. I I like trying to pick out what influences are going on here. We mentioned like cheerleader documentaries and Sonic Youth. He also cites Brighton bands, including I'm Being Good and Charlotte Field um plus albini mvp of the episode maybe with shellac and of course jackson five why not so (laughs) i'm also getting like uh vince giraldi his jaunty jazzy piano playing style the drums played with brushes you know that charlie brown christmas album do you dig that out oh i know it i know it yeah i hear that absolutely this is a spot-on comparison yeah and you've got the melodica going on which um is is one of my favorite parts of this record have you ever played a a melodica hayden because i would recommend it no i have i've not do you do you have a melodica have you uh you borrowed i don't don't have a melodica no i'm yeah now i feel now i feel lame you caught me i don't have a melodica but i i had a friend who had a melodica i used to like to jam on so it's a great 
it's a great experience. I if recommend you, it. If you had had a melodica, the novelty would have worn off. So I think it's better that you don't. So you're in <laughs> yes, the right spot. You're right. Yes, that's exactly right. Now it's like a treat. Yeah, because you just walk past your guitar like a hundred times a day, like whatever. There's a guitar there. I don't care. If you yeah. didn't have a guitar, you're like, I wish right. there was a guitar there. <laughs> that track with the the jaunty, jazzy piano and the melodica is Feel Good by Numbers, which is a, a really cool song. In terms of kind of like pulling this back to the geographical angle, there's a really nice pull quote from an interview with Ransom Note um, where Parton says, I guess the goatee music has never really been autobiographical. Like, hey, let me tell you about my life. It's more about grabbing everything you've loved from across the world and sellotaping it together. So in a way, it's placeless and hard to pin down. I love that. That really speaks to me, that idea of of grabbing everything you love and just sort of mishmashing it. Yeah, it's the perfect quote for this episode. It's almost like he knew we would be talking <laughs> about it in the context of place. Um, so I mentioned Feel Goodbye Numbers. I think for... yeah. Yeah, the song to highlight um, is the this is the album that I agonized the most when choosing because you mentioned Huddle Formation. That's notable for its affiliation with NPR. And then there's a single Lady Flash, which I feel like is the one that probably best encapsulates the album. It's it's one of the better known ones as well. Um, that said, but, but but that's not what we're here to talk the about. But is coming. The song "Get It Together" is literally the happiest song in the world. It is yeah. fantastic. It went immediately on my top fifty songs of all time playlist. It's got two recorders. How many recorders do most songs have? Not one. Not even. Not two. enough. Not enough. So it's like a unison dorky recorder melody, and it's almost it's kind of bad you know the one like da, 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 da. it's like yeah yes but then those drums jan and ed's kitchen they come in and they're like the loudest fucking drums i've ever heard over a recorder <laughs> and there's like a counter melody in there and uh, but uh, that drum sound i can't say enough about the drum sound man like it's like you took the most blown out drums you've ever heard and then just threw them in the bottom of an empty swimming pool <laughs> I, I love that yeah you should write about music <laughs> <laughs> you first the whole thing is so weird and perfect and happy and gives me school band vibes with the teacher getting on the kit to relive his glory days playing in hardcore bands I suspect that you are speaking from experience when you use that. That's a very specific <laughs> yeah. sort of analogy to make. Tell me more. Well, yeah, we did. We had that teacher. Uh-huh. He he wasn't. He didn't have a hardcore background. He had a jazz background. But shout out Mr. Gardner, my high school music teacher, who we would beg to go on the drums at every possible, uh, you know, occasion. And when you're doing your your performance that you're getting graded on you know like i'm playing a three minute rendition of sweet home alabama on (laughs) a 60 pound guitar as in (laughs) 60 british pounds not thank you for clarifying that because i i hate to be the uh, obnoxious american but i did have to think about what you meant by that i was like why are they giving these kids such heavy guitars Uh, yeah i thought as i said it yeah it's basically a cheap crappy guitar yeah playing some some song and then you have mr garner on the drums just going at it and 
that is this album dorky and melodic and huge drums and um awesome that's then that's not a criticism the dorkiness no god it's no. Um, of course it's not. so much fun and it's so so melodic love it mr garner this one is for you those following along in the cities to love playlist we now invite you to play track 11 get it together by the go team So once again, Taylor, we have diverged in our tastes in each category. Um, why don't you tell me about your pick for something cool? Yeah, why don't we get sad? It's been a minute. Let's get sad. This record is the Disco Elysium original soundtrack by Sea Power from 2020. And here we have some contemporaries of Electrolane. I told you we would be back. They've been around since the late 90s, and they were formerly known as British Sea Power founded by brothers Yan and Neil Wilkinson, who I believe are from Kendall originally, and then Yan goes to university in Reading. Afterwards, they form the band, they move to Brighton. They start hosting a series of shows called Club Sea Power at local venues, and it gets them noticed by Rough Trade Records. They go on to have a long, critically successful career, and uh, then in 2019, they win the British Academy Video Games Award for Music, which is an offshoot of the BAFTAs, for working on this game called Disco Elysium which is just a weird, bizarre turn for a band, any band. Not the usual career trajectory for a rock band. I wouldn't think so, although we may talk about it a little bit later. It's not unheard of for bands to go into soundtrack work and and be critically acclaimed for it. Video games, I think, is a weird angle. Hmm. We talk a lot about records that have a sense of place, and it is interesting to take a look at a record here that depicts an imaginary city called Revishal from the game Disco Elysium. And through this soundtrack, Sea Power makes it feel very resonant and very lived in and very real. I think, yeah, dropping the British from their name as well as making them sound less Brexity mm. also serves that geography agnostic thing that we've seen from a lot of these Brighton bands like Ian Parton spoke about the placelessness and that links with this imagined non-British city, Ravichol. Yeah, and one point of commonality is that Revishal is this seaside town, although a much more industrial sort of um, setting. Let me back up. Disco Elysium is this sci-fi mystery role-playing game designed by an Estonian novelist called Robert Kurvitz. And in it, you play as a police detective with amnesia. And the whole game is about him piecing together his memory at the same time as he's solving a murder in this unfamiliar city he has no memory of and at the same time he's wading into much larger stories about the history of the world where this game takes place and the nature of time and space it's it's the slowly unfolding mystery where the world of disco elysium feels a lot like our own at first it may be an alternate history version of it the story takes place after a failed communist revolution and there's a lot of things pointing to the fact that this city is a pretty clear analog for Eastern Europe after the fall of the Soviet Union. But the technology is just kind of off. There's all kinds of allusions to this weird cosmology of the world and traveling across dimensional planes. And and um, they drive these weird motor carriages instead of cars as we know them. And uh, as the more sci-fi stuff starts to unfold, you start to realize that you are somewhere else entirely. And the music, for its part, adds to the impression and just somehow manages to tie all these threads together. It's all relatably moody, 
but also otherworldly. It's familiar in some ways, but it's working to tell the story of a world with a whole other history, and that includes musical history. That's such a wonderful overview. Um, and you mentioned as well that music has a really big part. It's it's more than the underscore, isn't it? It's actually linked to plot points. Yeah, it's one of those things I'm a sucker for whenever uh, a game or a story or anything goes you know, really in-depth about the music that is a part of its setting. A lot of the game's subplots center on music. There's a group of kids who are trying to start a dance music club in an abandoned church in this city who you can help as part of a side quest. There's another whole side quest that revolves around the main character singing karaoke at the hostel where he's staying. (laughs) And you have to pass this really difficult skill check to do it. It's like a super high stakes moment in the story. I mean, because of what it means to you as a player to be able to do that. Not necessarily because of the overarching plot, but it's, it's one of the ways that this game sort of makes all these little moments feel very weighty and important side quest what is your karaoke song and is it bruce springsteen covered by electra lane it is now i haven't been to karaoke since we've you know researched this episode but (laughs) now i feel like it's gotta be um i don't know i feel like uh when i think about karaoke songs i've done um the killers i think my first ever karaoke song i did was um when you were young and uh that one is yeah but also, you know, I've done uh, some of the more novelty-ish stuff. I've done um, plenty of REM in my time, you know, End of the World or uh, yeah. or uh, what have you. How about you? I'm going SOS by ABBA because oh, okay. e- even if you sing it really poorly, it, it will still be better than Piers Brosnan <laughs> in the fucking Mamma Mia film. And it's a great song. I feel like that song slaps man I, but sorry i can't to... believe you paid off the abba reference from the intro hayden you did it <laughs> yay but to get back to get back <laughs> on track i'm sorry for interrupting you um the musical references in the in the dialogue did you yeah mention that, there's right? there's all kinds of things this game is is mostly about its dialogue a lot of the skill checks happen in conversation a lot of the you know best parts of of the game are are interesting things you can find by choosing weird dialogue options or making weird dice rolls and there's an option at one point for you as a dialogue option to just start spouting dmx lyrics in conversation it's that kind of a a game there's all these kinds of weird like almost douglas adams-esque kind of um comic turns in the game out of nowhere it's it's really wonderful incredible um to get into sort of the creation of the soundtrack, Jan Scott Wilkinson of Sea Power did an interview with Nintendo Life about the soundtrack, and he says that Robert Kurvitz asked the band specifically, personally, if they would do the soundtrack because apparently he's a super fan. And so the way it would work is the developers would share things from the game and they would ask for music for specific scenes and story beats, but the band ended up working pretty independently, engineering the whole thing themselves and sort of... of in conversation with the developers at a distance. Just to once more interrupt your very beautiful overview of this album, um, are there are there many other examples that we know of rock bands taking on, or not even rock bands, but just alternative artists taking on game scores? Because a yeah, few yeah. spring to mind for films like Yola Tango did Adventureland, and then we've, yeah. of course, got Trent and Atticus of Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> The goats. The goats, yeah. Um, the tons more. Beck and Nigel Godrich did Scott Pilgrim, but... Yes, classic. Yeah. But yeah, I think there is more of it happening in video games. You know, when I when I think about this, 
like a couple years ago, Japanese Breakfast did the soundtrack for a game called Sable. I remember hearing about, oh, and yeah. um, of of course, for me, one of the high water marks of this kind of thing is always going to be the great chip tune band Anamanaguchi doing the music for the Scott Pilgrim beat 'em up video game, <laughs> um, which was a classic. That was a really exciting thing. I remember as a teenager, like having been into that band and having been into that comic, and then all of a sudden there was a video game and the band was doing the the soundtrack and and knocked it out of the park, of course. It must be how I felt when Green Day were in the Simpsons movie. Movie. <laughs> it was exactly like that. Yeah. To get back into the record itself, I definitely wanted to make sure that we talked about the track Whirling in Rags, 8 p.m., because it is so central to this game, but also to the discography of the band Sea Power in a really weird and wonderful way. The story goes that Robert Kurvitz requested an instrumental version of the Sea Power song Up Against It, which he pulled from a limited edition EP, just called EP2, from a series they put out in 2012. I believe it was a CD-only release, and as far as I can tell, it's not officially available anywhere. And um, so that was um, another case of him pulling his yeah. Sea Power bona fides. Deep and cut. It's, it ended up becoming the theme for the hostel that forms one of the most central locations in the game. And the hostel itself is called The Whirling in Rags, which is also from a Sea Power lyric. So the references go very deep. So this, so there are several Whirling in Rags songs on the soundtrack album. This is the 8 p.m. version. Is that right? Yeah, there's different variations based on what time in the world of the game you are visiting this hostel. Mm. And uh, I chose the 8 p.m. one just because it's got a little bit of a, a nice energy, a little bit of a pick-me-up energy that I thought was really neat. It's one of the most recurring musical themes of the game just because it has all these variations. And so it becomes this very comforting thing in this super unfamiliar world. They ended up then completing the circle, Sea Power did, by re-recording Up Against It under the title Fire Escape in the Sea, which was released on the album they put out in 2022 called Everything Was Forever. So <laughs> you end up with this thing where I, I've seen on my chosen streaming service where the top three songs from this band are all the exact same song. Right. Yeah, it's very funny. And I wonder how much overlap there is between fans of this band and fans of the game. Um, because, you know, I did this was not an Anamanaguchi and Scott Pilgrim thing for me. I had never heard of um that's not true. I had never listened to Sea Power. I knew them by reputation as a as a prolific band that had been around for years and just never gotten into them. And uh it was this crazy thing where now, you know, I got into them via the soundtrack to this video game. Yeah. And now fans want to hear Whirling in Rags. Play <laughs> Whirling in Rags. I, I wonder if that's if that's their curse now as people shout that out at their shows. But um, no, this game, I have to say, is just brilliant. It asks these very big spiritual and political questions. It's full of humor and pathos. It's, it's some of the most compelling storytelling and characters of maybe any video game I've ever played. I played it last fall with my wife around the holidays and... We both loved it so much that we started right over from the beginning and played it all the way through a second time. Um, so I just have to say that. And also that the soundtrack is a really great compliment to that because the world of this game has this very thick atmosphere of disillusionment, downtroddenness, and also this very stubborn human perseverance in the face of everything. The game is full of people who are making music and, and art and who are doing their best <laughs> and also you know people who are making things worse in the world but this very stubborn human persistence in the face of it 
and the music is just as emotionally rich and complex. There's gorgeous string and brass arrangements alongside the electronics, and overall, the way it's used in the game is really nicely understated. It's just kind of waiting to shine in the background every time you have this quiet moment for it to come into focus. Those following along in the Cities to Love playlist, we now invite you to play track 12, Whirling in Rags, 8 p.m., by Sea Power. Well, Hayden, I, for one, have now experienced every possibility of earthly happiness. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say. I second that. I have too, and um, very enjoyed your visit to the gay bathing place full with officers. Oh, it was it was a delight. I, I wanted to say, we've talked a little bit about placelessness in this episode, and um, I think maybe it's just that I'm envious of people who live by the ocean. You know, like the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay are all well and good, but it's not really the same thing. You've sent me some just gorgeous pictures of the views around where you are, and I imagine that might be an element of the sense of placelessness we get from people like Ian Parton, visually even, just having the whole world kind of spread out in front of you on the horizon and this feeling of being everywhere and also nowhere in a way. Yeah, I I really like that. And I've started thinking about that as I'm walking on the beach and um, there is, you can kind of pretend you're anywhere in a way, um, anywhere there's a beach at least, but yeah, the expanse is inspiring even um, to kind of segue into the topic of our next episode which is going to be toronto toronto um i remember the band always and their front woman molly rankin saying that she really likes to write by a large body of water because she finds Mm. it really inspiring so um yeah there's something there's something about the sea man but thank you for coming on this stroll along the promenade of brighton music history uh, I kind of have mixed feelings towards this city because growing up, I had a bit of a pang of envy that I wasn't born in a, a real music city like <laughs> you were, um, you know, your DCs and your Seattles or whatever. But this episode really has helped me appreciate this town more than ever. So thank you, Taylor, Andy and Parton and the rest of the gang, all the pun makers. Uh, and we'll see you next the time. The pun when makers, we... the dreamers and me. <laughs> You're all the above. We'll head back your way next time and then up a little bit and we'll see you in Toronto. See you there. For more from the hosts of Cities to Love, check out the episode description where you can find links to the Cities to Love playlist as well as some of our other music writing work. Thanks to Ultimate Overshare for the use of Gotta Juice, which is our intro and outro music. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. This has been Cities to Love. Cities to Love.